0: Welcome to the DBSA podcast series. Today, we have a very special episode. We're speaking with DBSA's co-founder, Rose Curlin. She takes us back to the fall of 1978, when six people gathered in her living room in gillencoe Illinois. This small but enthusiastic group laid the foundation for life-changing work that reaches across 35 years. Rose sits down with our communications director, Betsy O'Brien, and gives us a glimpse of the friends, colleagues, and medical partners who have fueled decades of hope and progress for people with mood disorders. Enjoy the episode. Rose, we are so honored to speak with you today. It's amazing to realize that it's been 35 years since this organization of ours had its beginnings. And um, I've heard that it actually began in your home in Glencoe, Illinois. Is that right?
1: Correct. Yes.
0: But even before that, there must have been a moment that you realized that an alliance of this kind was needed. Can you tell me um, about that time and what was, what was happening? What, what gave you this idea?
1: In April of 1978, an, an old school friend of mine called me and told me that her younger sister had been hospitalized and diagnosed with manic depressive illness, And did I know of any organizations that she could turn to for support? And I told her I did not, but I would look into it. Uh, Furthermore, my friend said that her sister had gone to an organization that had dealt with every type of mental illness and it was not what she needed. So I just started thinking about it and, and I got permission to get inside a medical library to do some research. And I talked to Dr. Fawcett about it. And again, this was all beginning in April of 78. By September of 78, I was ready to host a meeting at my house. And I invited some people I knew who had started other self help groups and had given me some information already, and a psychologist I had met. And interestingly, I contacted some people that I had met when I was hospitalized at Rush Press St. Luke's back in 1973. And none of them were agreeable to coming to such a meeting. One was a, um, an instructor of, of dentistry at University of Illinois. And he said, what would my f- patients think if my hands were in their mouth and they heard that I had manic depressive illness. So at the last minute I called a woman who was a friend of my husband's cousin who had a diagnosis of manic depressive illness. And she agreed to come to my house. And she furthermore agreed when I said that I could not do this alone. She agreed to help me. And, um, that's how we got started. We decided we would have a meeting, and we put a um, blurb in some local newspapers, and, including the reader, and all of the people who came to that meeting, there were about six of them, stayed um, involved, at least for the first year and maybe more. As the year went on, we had coverage by local reporters at every... Um, lecture we sponsored and the first lecture was the one that we sponsored at the Glencoe library where we were only to hit 80 people and 125 showed up and then after that we moved over to the Skokie library which held more um, could accommodate more people and um, we had no problem getting different doctors or professionals who were willing to talk to us. We had a public lecture every two months. We had meetings every month at a, well, for the first year, we had them at our, at either Marilyn's house or my house. Um, and after, when we were almost one year into our meetings, we had coverage in the Chicago Tribune. And that brought in phone calls from six in the morning on And it was, at that time, I decided we needed to have an answering service. We couldn't handle all this.
0: From the picture you're painting, from going all the way back to that first meeting at the Glencoe Public Library, where the room was overflowing, and I've heard that there were people on the steps listening by loudspeaker. Obviously, It was obvious to all of you that there was a really, you had tapped into a deep need. Uh, Absolutely. were Were you surprised to see
1: I was surprised that as many people showed up because until then, I was thinking that it would be Marilyn's family and my family, and that would be it. Um, At that meeting, um, someone came up to me afterwards as I was still standing close to the podium, having introduced Dr. Fawcett and ending the meeting, and suggested that we have a, a family group. Because our group was strictly for people who had been diagnosed with um, depressive or manic depressive illness. So I said, that's an excellent idea. Maybe you want to do that. I said, I can't handle two groups. One is enough. But we did. Um, someone did take the, the reins and actually it was a friend of Marilyn's and got a family group going as well. So from the
0: very beginning, there was a time, there was consideration not only for people who were living with what was then called manic depression, but also uh, the needs of families, of people and loved ones living with the people uh, who have these conditions. Even before um, having your very first meeting in 1978, was there a time when you began to do a little bit of pre-work or investigating the idea of gathering a group?
1: Well, actually that all started in April of 78 with that phone call from my friend asking if I knew of any groups. And that was the, the first time I actively started to investigate. I, my husband, who was now my ex-husband, um, had told me that he never wanted me to talk about My diagnosis never wanted me to acknowledge that I had been hospitalized. So I figured, okay, it's not that I was doing what he said. It was just that it wasn't coming up. You didn't go places where people were talking about it. Once I decided that I was going to start the group, then I started talking. And as it happened, when I lived up in Glencoe, At the end of the block was a psychiatrist and his family. Next door to us was a psychologist and her family. And across the street on another corner was another psychiatrist. So when there was a neighborhood get-together, it was easy to find people to talk to about it. Um, And anyway, but again, I didn't actively start doing anything until April. And I took until September before I felt ready to try to get a meeting at my house.
0: So you had you knew people, you may have even met other people before that who shared the same condition, people that you were in contact with after your first hospitalization, is that right? Right,
1: right. and actually I had more than one hospitalization in 72. From 72 to 73, I had four hospitalizations each one until the last one at Rush Press, failed to inform me of what my condition was, nor give me appropriate information as to how to handle it. And I wasn't interested in taking medicine unless I knew what it was for. But by 73, when I was hospitalized for two months at Rush Press under Dr. Fawcett and his associates. Dr. Fawcett, until he retired or primarily retired and moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, had been the head of psychopharmacology at Rush Press St. Luke's. And he was an excellent doctor in terms of diagnosis and treatment. And he was a very, and I'm sure still is, very compassionate person.
0: Well, that must have made a tremendous difference. Did you feel frustrated as you were continually admitted to the hospital one time a second time a third time and somehow it's it sounds as if you were running into many of the barriers and the confusion and the and the concern that that people still grapple with
1: today. Absolutely. Um, I do think it's better today because we've been around all these years people are more educated their families are more educated and the doctors are more educated as to the needs of the um, patient. Um, Once we got the group going, I don't know if it was in 70, I think it was in 79, um, somebody had informed us that there was a woman at the APA, that's the American Psychiatric Association Convention. There was a woman there and that year it was held in Chicago And she was showing videotapes about an organization um, that she was with. And and, um, the tapes had to do with various patients or, or persons who had the illness. So we went down to where the meeting was taking place, we meaning Marilyn and myself, and met this wonderful woman from Seattle, Washington, who had tried to get a group going in her area. And as it happened in college, she had taken classes in videotaping and was quite educated along those lines. So um, that's we met her, and from that year on, for a couple of years, we all would go to the APA. Dr. Fawcett would help us financially to get there, and we would videotape various doctors of high esteem, and and be thrilled with it, and. I remember when one doctor gave us a contribution of like $25 and it paid for a blank videotape. I mean, we were thrilled by very modest endeavors. And and, um, anyway, we met wonderful people in in those years and somewhere those tapes still exist.
0: It would be fun to find them and see what they have. But it sounds like the focus from the very beginning was on education. What could you learn? What practical knowledge could you gain directly from people that were, were trying to unravel the mysteries of what was then called manic depression um, so that there could be greater understanding? So education felt like empowerment.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's how we described ourselves in these from the very first newspaper articles that we were unlike a uh, 12-step program. We were not intending to have people come to our meetings and stay for life. We were intending to have people come to our meeting and, and become educated and, and stay well. And once they stayed well, we had, although we would have enjoyed seeing them again, we'd, we didn't look for that commitment. We just wanted to help people to get to the point of staying well and get on with their regular lives.
0: When did the idea of peer support and peer meetings um, come into view?
1: Well, as soon as we started going to the APA's, doctors who would line up like eight deep in front of our little homemade booth, um, they would talk to us and they would take back with them whatever printed information we had and what we would do would be print out articles or print out coverage of the lectures. I mentioned at another time or that we had a lot of local reporters who used to come to our lectures at the Skokie Library, take a picture, write about the speaker, write about the organization. So whatever we could make copies of, we would have available. And once these doctors started doing this, um, people from around the country, started contacting us telling us they wanted to start a group. In one case when we went to New York for the APA, a group existed. I think they started a year after we did and I think we had some correspondence with them already by mail or telephone because I remember being invited to um, a potluck dinner at, at some of the members home and of all people, I shouldn't say it that way, But one of the people who attended that meeting was Abby Hoffman, if you remember him. And he had just (laughs) just been released from the hospital, and he looked a little dopey.
0: So that would be Abby Hoffman, the very, very well-known activist. Um, Did he
1: cross
0: cross your path because he actually had a mental health condition himself, or was he simply used
1: He did. Yes, he did. He had um, been diagnosed with manic depressive illness, and he had been hospitalized. And he um, came to this potluck dinner. And as the years went by and we formed a national board, some of the original members of the various groups around the country were people who became national board members as well. So
0: that's how it grew. You, You began to, other groups found you and you noticed that there was the potential for this to be more than something that was going on locally, and for and for your own, for your group's benefit.
1: Right, right. And there was no lack of interest. You know, once people became aware of us, and this goes back even to before we went to an APA. But when that Chicago Tribune article came out about Marilyn and me, um, it had been part of a five-day series. And um one of the days had to do with this well-known man from Chicago who has since passed away, Dino D'Angelo, and he was a very um productive, profitable real estate person. Among other things, he owned the Lyric Opera House. And I remember when my son was working downtown one summer, he used to take the train downtown and walk along Madison street to downtown. And he'd say to me, are you sure he owned this place? (laughs) Anyway, um, his wife went on to become one of our national board members. But he was described in one of the series. And then when it came to Marilyn and me, what we did when we were involved in a, in a, um, I don't know how to say it, anything more than the coverage of a a, um, lecture where it was quite appropriate to use our own names, but if it were just a story about Marilyn or my and our personal lives with the illness, the reporter Mm -hmm. would agree to using pseudonyms. So um, anyway, even though she did that. Oh, I'm so sorry. Please continue. No, that's right. Even though they did that, they still used our home telephone numbers until I finally changed (laughs) from our home numbers to an answering service. But people from the Tribune article had our home numbers. And as I think I mentioned already, the phone would start ringing like six in the morning because... People would see the Tribune article, families, and cut it out and mail it to their relatives in whatever state they lived in, and nobody bothered to convert from, you know, East Coast time to Chicago time to West Coast time. So, um, you know, that's that's another way we grew because of this Tribune coverage, and then the doctors, and then there were local um, professionals who would want us to come out and give talks, such as a psychiatric nurse at Reed Hospital um, had us out. We did one or two videotapes there. And then they ended up showing them, I think, weekly um, to different patients, so they could get a little education that so, way.
0: Um, I, I, it became a dialogue between, um, not only between peers who were looking for answers for themselves, but also the, the, the medical caregivers were very interested in what you had to say, what, what the peer point of view was.
1: Correct. And they may not have liked our answers all the time, but um, they set themselves up in a way. I remember once at one of the APA conventions, one of the doctors insisted that I couldn't possibly be taking the medication I was taking because it was used for epilepsy, which could be true an anticonvulsant, but it was also and had been used for bipolar disorder for years too. So I had to disagree with him and in terms educate him. Um, When I had a break from standing behind the booth, I would walk around the scientific exhibition hall, which is where our booth was, and talked to different drug salesmen or saleswomen, and I remember one saying to me, "Oh, our medication absolutely has no side effects, no dry mouth, no um, shaky hands, nothing." And I said, "Well, that's interesting because I take your medication, and my mouth feels like the Sahara Desert." So, you know, there. But as I say, <laughs> we did our educating, not always to people who wanted to hear what we had to say, but we would say it.
0: It's interesting that in the very beginning, your husband asked you not to disclose what was happening to you with chronic depression. Um, it you And all of this was happening in a time when it was very hard to disclose to other people. About right.
1: Us. One of the things Dr. Fawcett said to us when we when I brought Marilyn with me and we went down and met with him just at the very beginning when we were talking about having a meeting, a first meeting, he said, there'll be a time when um, people will be at a party and one person might be talking about having had her appendix removed and even saying, do you wanna see my scar? And maybe someone else will be talking about um, being diagnosed with diabetes and talking about the diet they're on. And then another person will say, oh, I just had an episode of my manic depressive illness and this is what I had to deal with. And um, he also said to us at that time that he would do anything he could to help us spread information, including getting something into a newspaper. I said, well, that would be wonderful, but we already did that step. Because by that time, we had put our blurb into the local papers. And one of the reporters, when we brought the blurb to the newspaper offices, because we were concerned that if we mailed it, it might not get there. So we would go from Pioneer Press to Learner News to wherever with a blurb. One of the reporters said, well, you don't have a name for your organization. What is it? So I came up with... Just because I had to come up with something and I wasn't thinking straight, I said, Manic Depressives in Action. And that's how our name appeared at first until I realized that the image that I had was a bunch of people with manic depressive illness running around, being very active. Being So we changed it to the Manic Depressive Association. And, and that then was when the
0: first name right that was so so MDA were the first initials of your association well
1: it, yes but then we had enough people who just experienced depressive illness joining us who protested that they weren't included in the name so we became the MDDA manic depressive depressive association and. That's what we were for years and years. When we became a national organization, we added the letter N for national in front of us. So it was the national or the NGMDA. And then some years later, um, uh, the person who was the executive director at the time thought it would be appropriate to change the name. And there was some consulting being done and um, the name changed. It became bipolar instead of manic depressive,
0: right? And for reasons out. of stigma, yes. Eventually, we became the Depression Bipolar Support Alliance as the new the new name for what used to right. be called manic depression came into view. So, um, can you tell me? <laughs> we would love to hear the story about the bumper sticker that said honk if
1: you're on." Oh. I, you, that was courtesy of one of our first members, and I can't remember who, but that's how we started with it. I didn't even know that it was still knowledge that you were aware of, that bumper sticker, and I wish I could be more specific about it, but I can't. We all went and slammed them on our cars, and <laughs> but we were very into being honest and open about it.
0: in in fact what you're describing to me are are a whole series of very bold acts including putting a bumper sticker on your car that says hey i take lithium (laughs) i'm disclosing um was there ever a time that anything overwhelmingly negative happened because you were brave enough to come out and talk about your
1: life unfortunately some of the stigma that we experienced went through people who actually were members of the organization who would say things like, Oh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Maybe she's manic. Um, I would call that, you know, definitely negative reaction.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that stigma takes many, many forms and that even we within a community of people (laughs) who are peers, sometimes it comes through, doesn't it?
1: Right, and that used to upset me a lot and the arguing that would take place at our board meetings used to upset me a lot because people were on different sides of an issue and I seemed to be the one representing one side and there were a couple others on another side and I would talk to whoever our medical advisor was at the time, either Dr. Fawcett or the doctor who we asked to replace him when Dr. Fawcett wanted to be replaced um, and we were also forming a list uh, or a group of professional advisors. But anyway, I, w- I remember distinctly saying to one of the doctors that I no longer wanted to be involved. I no longer wanted to be involved in this arguing. It makes me feel very fragile and I don't want to increase my, med- increase my medications just to make it through a board meeting. And the response I got was, "Rose, you can't leave. You represent untold amounts of people who aren't here to represent themselves, and that's you know why you need to stay involved." So I did.
0: That kept you motivated, knowing that for 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 yourself and for everybody that was at the table and had gotten involved, there were probably dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of others.
1: Right, right. The first time I decided that. I wouldn't actively be involved in the local chapter, I think, was when I started at graduate school, which was, I think, 1986. And I went to graduate school at the School of Social Service Administration down at University of Chicago. And I thought, I can't keep spending my spare time going to meetings and talking to people on the phone when I'm doing this for, you know, school. It's too much. So, I withdrew, but I stayed on, I withdrew from day-to-day activity, but I continued to be involved on the uh, local board and the national board.
0: And Are there other milestones as as you think over the years? Um, I had heard uh, a wonderful description of the very first uh, convention. I think this would have been 1984, and we're Um, that was held at the Palmer House in Chicago, and it it sounds like it was a big gathering. The list here says 50 leaders from 14 states.
1: Right. It was a big gathering. It was wonderful. Um, I have some wonderful photographs, if you ever want to see them. I have albums of photographs from the years of the organization. Um, And at the time, I, I knew a man who who loved to take pictures. So he came to the convention with me and took pictures of everybody who was there. And these were like, again, the people who had started their organizations in their cities and states. But there was some kind of charisma about the original people that you just felt drawn to them. And, and um, it was a new movement and something about the founders of new movements made it very exciting and very fulfilling.
0: That must have been a a beautiful evening and it really wasn't that many years (laughs) into your history and yet it had gathered momentum so
1: quickly. We actually had one meeting before that that we didn't call a convention because there were only five chapters involved But we had a meeting with the heads of the five chapters, uh, one being from Midland, Michigan, one being from St. Louis, Missouri, one or two would come, Um, a couple from Minneapolis. I don't know if we had anyone from New York at that meeting, but we had, I know we had five groups represented, we from Chicago being one of the groups, and the first night we met at where I lived, and met at that time. And um, we had dinner. And then the next day, courtesy of Dr. Fawcett, we had a meeting room down at Rush Press St. Luke's, and we met down there, and um, he was kind enough to join us for part of the meetings. And here we were, five chapters, and he was talking about how we need to think about becoming a national movement. And I said, I can barely deal with the responsibilities for one local chapter, you know, how would we do a national movement? But this was nineteen maybe 1982. Um, So no, it wasn't that many years between that little gathering of five to the next one at the Palmer House where there were I think there were 20-some chapters represented but I could be wrong on that number. And then we kept having these conventions.
0: The other milestone that I was wondering about and how how would it feel, um, this must have been in Washington, D.C. Um, speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, is there. There's some very prominent senators. And the right. the speaker is Catherine Graham, publisher of the um, Washington Post. Um, right tell us about that evening?
1: That was 1986, if I'm correct, and it was very exciting. Again, we had people from different chapters around the country. We had these well-known people, in fact, I probably have the invitation at home if you don't have it, Um, but it tells who the like six well-known people are who were going to be speakers But yes, it was Catherine Graham was our spokeswoman for the event. And when we had a, um, one of the events was supposed to be for senators or representatives and us, but if they couldn't come, they sent their aides. But it was hundreds of people It was just mind boggling. And then those of us who had become friendly over the years um, would go out during the day. We went to visit Lincoln's statue memorial whatever it's called and we toasted him with apple juice for being one of the most famous manic depressives we were aware of and um we just had a wonderful time and again these were the years the early years when when you um really loved being with your co-workers and your and your colleagues from other cities
0: But clearly, um, at a gathering like that, it's also becoming clear that legislators and prominent public figures are beginning to step into the spotlight too. They are helping draw public attention to what is happening to people that live with mood disorders. That must have been, and that's less than 10 years after you made your start in this very simple way. Right. Uh, What did you think about that kind of attention from policymakers?
1: Um, Well, first of all, you probably or possibly know that Catherine Graham's husband had committed suicide, and that was the reason that she was interested in supporting us. Um, I know that this one representative or senator whose name I cannot think of now, who ultimately ran for president, he didn't win... Um, But his wife had the diagnosis of manic depressive illness. It was, I, I don't, I can't explain how it would feel when people would come up to you and thank you for what you had done. And most of the time I would just say, Oh, it was nothing. Oh, I'm glad I did it. Oh, I wish somebody had done it for me, you know, X years ago. But, um, Anyway, and especially at gatherings like this with hundreds of people in attendance, it was just, um, I hate to use the term mind boggling, but it wasn't like you could actually be, I don't mean conscious, but it was hard to absorb it all. So it was like you had to step back a little bit and look at it from a distance. Is this really happening? And then then we started doing something else that brought in a lot of people to attendance. We started having a um, dinner dance every year that would honor one of our doctors. So the first one was the Jan Fawcett Humanitarian Award Dinner, where we awarded him. And I remember him saying, these are the kinds of awards you usually get when you're dead. I don't think I've died yet, but thank you. And Um, And then we gave one one year to um, Dr. Fred Goodwin from National Institute of Mental Health. I believe we gave one to Kay Jamison or maybe, we? yeah, I think we did. Kay Jamison, by the way, came to our convention in Fort Worth, Texas back in the very early years. And she presented a program on moods and music because she had started doing a concert where she highlighted the lives of five famous composers who suffered from manic depressive illness. So she came and she presented this program for us, not live, obviously, we didn't have musicians. And then she said to me, oh, and the next morning when we had a brunch, I sat next to her and she asked if she could keep coming. because she come next year? I said, of course, you would be a valuable guest. Of course you could keep coming. And she did, and it wasn't until much later in her life, in our life, um, that she decided to acknowledge that she too experienced manic depressive illness. She wrote a book or two on the subject. So um, our history goes back to about 1983 or 84 with her, yeah.
0: Do you think that it's helpful to people then and now to hear about the lives of individuals who might be famous or well-known or prominent in their communities who are, have the courage to come on out and say, yes, I live with a mood disorder.
1: I think it is helpful. And I think lots of well-known people have done it. I think if um, certainly it was helpful when Patty Duke came out, it was helpful when Rod Steiger came out. I remember hearing him, speak in Chicago once, Um, you know, I was part of the audience and I absolutely cried listening to him. He was a wonderful actor, a wonderful speaker. Um, It didn't do some people, uh, uh, it didn't help some people who acknowledged it. There was um, Thomas Eagleton who ran for president once and when, Whenever possible, publicity came out and talked about it having had electroshock treatment. Um, there are, you know, so it could work both ways. But for the most part, for us, the patients and our family members, it certainly was to our advantage when well known people came out and wrote a book or started talking. Because among other things, this helped reduce the stigma when it was out in the open.
0: What do you say today when, when people talk to you about stigma? How do, how do you see it now? You have a very long time horizon to, to look over. Have we made progress?
1: Oh, certainly, absolutely. You can go lots of places and find people willing to talk about their manic depressive illness. They, it's you know gotten, not maybe not entirely, but it's certainly gotten closer to the point that Dr. Fawcett suggested when he said, you know, you'll go to a party and people will talk about their appendectomy or their diabetes and then someone will talk about their manic depressive illness. It's almost like a, you know, something that people sometimes brag about. It it feels like they're bragging about it, but that also could depend upon their state of mind at the time. But yeah, I think um, outside of it being, still being a problem in workplaces, I think we've come a long way. How would you
0: relate the work that DBSA has done over the years to the progress that you're seeing for people who live with mood disorders? How have we contributed to make this a better world to live in?
1: First of all, I believe that without this organization our uh, we not, would not not have been able to educate the people with the illness or families and the population entirely, everybody. Um, I think it couldn't happen without our organization because this is still part of the mission is, if not entirely, but to educate. And who would have done it if it hadn't been for us? And those early years attending the APA, we were the only patient group in attendance nobody else was there. That's why these doctors used to come up and line up in front of our booth because they didn't have any other patients there to talk to. Um, and what? right at the same time that we had formed our group, Marilyn and I and two other members of the organization went up to Madison, Wisconsin, where a group called NAMI was having their first um, large meeting. And we attended all their Work not all their workshops, but workshops and main meetings and and at that time NAMI was primarily a family organization. And I remember at the end of the meeting, they had they had a meeting in the big room, and then they had small workshops. And at the end of on Sunday, they had we congregated back in this large meeting room, and I was seated way in the back, and I was. I was thin and I was wearing a pantsuit and I was waving my hand to be called upon. And somebody said the young man in the back. So I said, okay, I'll respond. I'm a young woman in the back. And I just want to suggest to you that while I know that you as family members are going through hard times and you are working hard for your family person, um, there are people who have experienced the illness, and we would be happy to be recognized and called upon and speak for ourselves. I said the same thing once at a meeting at the APA when a group of doctors were on a panel and kept talking about people in terms of statistics, and I raised my hand. I was in the audience, and I said, "Um, rather than talking about statistics, why don't you talk about us? there are several of us sitting here right now and we'd be happy to answer your questions. So I guess you have to have a little bit of chutzpah is a word for during certain times. But trying to get back to the progress of DBSA, I could never ever have dreamed that DBSA would become what it became and continues to be. And I'm forever grateful for that.
0: And we are grateful to you. All of us who are part of DBSA today, people, volunteers, and staff are very grateful to you. Thank Thank you you. for talking with us today.
1: Thank you. My pleasure.